You're listening to the Enneacast, a production of Love That Neighborhood. To keep this type of content and teaching coming to your podcast feed, head over to lovethatneighborhood.org slash podcast to donate now. Again, you can support our work by donating at lovethatneighborhood.org slash podcast. What's embedded into these narratives that we read, whether it's Peter or whether it's Nahum or whether it's Moses or whether it's Ruth, is that these are personalities that, though they might be in a different context, are still living within the same vices and virtues, the same longings, the same patterns of repetitive behavior and convictions, the same temptations, just in different contexts. This is a show about self-discovery. About understanding ourselves. About looking into the mirror to see the good, the bad, and the unknown of who we are. This is about how we relate to God and everyone else. From Love That Neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome. 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 To the Enneacast. Welcome to the Enneacast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Lindsay Lewis. Every episode, we walk you through the Enneagram. And today, we're going to be talking about biblical narratives and the Enneagram. I'm really excited to have this conversation today because I'm always talking to people who want to type all the biblical characters. Mm -hmm. And for some characters, you're like, we literally have one sentence about them in this entire book. Yeah. So it'll be really interesting to go through and see how this can be formational in our lives. Yeah. Well, I don't think we should go this alone. And so to help us with this, we have a special guest, A.J. Sherrill. A.J. has been a pastor for more than 20 years, serving in diverse settings across the nation. He's an adjunct professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, where he teaches on transformational preaching in the Enneagram. He's also a writer, and his latest book is called The Enneagram for Spiritual Formation, How Knowing Ourselves Can Make Us More Like Jesus. Welcome to the show, A.J. Yeah, it's so good to be here with you both. Yeah, glad to have you with us. AJ, you see a problem with the way we approach Scripture and the biblical narrative. What is that problem? Well, I think a lot of people view the Scripture as primarily a book that might have been relevant at some other time point, but doesn't seem, at least since the uh, scientific revolution, that it has much to contribute Mm -hmm. in the ways in which we thought. Um, And so a lot of it is how we actually view Scripture in the first place and what demands we're trying to make on the scripture as a whole, given that most of our framework of even reading, science, history, all of that has been developed centuries after the biblical text was um, written down for the first time. Uh, Well, one of the things I say often to the church in which I pastor here in Charleston is that I'm not sure that we've ever printed more Bibles, but I'm also not sure that we've ever read them less. Mm. And so it seems to me that maybe we have a gap between how we view the scripture and how we're supposed to. Yeah, yeah. So I guess then the next question would be, you know, what's the intersection of the Enneagram in this? I mean, how can the Enneagram help with this issue? Yeah, I mean, for me, a lot of it comes down to narrative. It comes down to um, archetypes, things that Jungian psychology has been really helpful for us. And it's not that the narrative that the scripture is telling is purely fable or mythology, because I wouldn't argue that as well. I, I believe in a literal Jesus, a literal resurrection. I would simply suggest that the Bible isn't about characters that lived in a different context at that time that have nothing to contribute to our lives. 
what's embedded into these narratives that we read, whether it's Peter or whether it's Nahum or whether it's Moses or whether it's Ruth, is that these are personalities that, though they might be in a different context, are still living within the same vices and virtues, the same longings, the same patterns of repetitive behavior and convictions, the same temptations, just in different contexts strewn out along human history. And so I think when we can begin to reevaluate Scripture as people that have sort of lived the life that I now am being graced to live in the 21st century, though in a different context, in a different place, um, they have a contribution to make in our lives as to how to walk with wisdom, how to walk in grace, how to walk in love, and how to actually live rightly amidst all of the the shifts and changes in the cultural surroundings around us. Mm, I really like that. And it just made me think of as you were talking, like if we believe that God is the creator of these nine archetypes, it makes total sense that in his word, he would speak to and show examples of those archetypes. Is that true? Yes, I think so. I mean, we have such a a diversity of personalities in the scripture that show up differently in different times. All these nine types, they're also called the nine faces of the soul. Mm -hmm. In other words, um, they all represent a part of God's image. And when they're in health, they display God's glory. Like when you're in your health as in your personality, you're displaying an angle of the image of God that the world needs to see. And that's one of the reasons why I'm always advocating that the Enneagram, um, contrary to some popular opinion, is not a narcissistic individualist tool. Mm -hmm. It actually is a tool to showcase that we actually need the church, that we need community, because we need each other to better represent the full image of God than we can alone. It is true that we image God alone, but when we do it together healthily in community, in our diversity, in our different personalities— we better showcase the full scope, the full face of God than we can with any individual. Yes, I totally agree. So do you think that we can actually know a biblical character's type? No. And that's, I mean, (laughs) at the beginning of my book, I'm really clear that like, we should never type other people. Don't do Uh that. Don't be in any Graham church. Don't be in any Graham organization (laughs) where that's where you're known for. Um, But what we can do is pull out moments in the lives of these people who have gone before us and to say, hey, some of you really identify with Peter as a six, just constantly going from fear to courage. Peter is such a great example. Whether he was a six or not, I wouldn't say Peter's a six. I would say there are many moments in the narrative of what we have with Peter that presents any at six to say like, oh my goodness, I identify with Peter as a character and I myself find myself waffling through decisions that I once had conviction about that now I'm not so sure of in moments that I felt so emboldened in my faith Now I just sort of wrestle with doubt and I don't know what to do with that. Well, what we can do is look at the scripture and to say, you are not alone. It's not like you, this is the first time this has ever happened in history and that God loves you anyway and that God is committed to your formation. And so I think it's actually really good news, but no, I don't think we should or can type people, but we can pull out data from people's lives in order to help make sense of our own. Let's go through each of the nine types and look at where our personality can connect with somebody who has gone before us in the biblical story. So let's kick things off with the heart triad, type two, commonly known as the helper. So AJ, which biblical narrative would you say represents the type two well? 
Yeah. So I, I am a huge proponent of twos. My mother presents as a two and she's one of my heroes. To the twos listening, I'm so sorry that you are being compared to animals here because you're not (laughs) a human being with dreams and longings and you're a child of God. Um, The narrative that I I love that Jesus tells, and yet I I also, um, I'm so conflicted about this narrative about Matthew 25, where Mm -hmm. in the end, Jesus separates sheep and goats, right, as a metaphor of um, different kinds of experiences and people that have made different choices in their life. And obviously the sheep are those that are sort of granted access into the kingdom and the goats aren't. And many of us don't really know what to do with this parable, but I think there's like a deeper invitation into this. And that is for twos to look at the motive of the sheep Like, for example, like the whole narrative is, hey, for those that actually responded to the cries of the poor, you actually were doing it for me, for Jesus. And that's really beautiful. So I want you to see me and the cries of people that are living a different life experience than you, that you can help be a part of their life and help benefit. But the deeper layer here is that these sheep, they're not even aware that they were doing these things. For the two, you know, the temptation is often twos have a sort of subversive pride. And so they're really helpful. But when they're not healthy, there's like a motive, there's an agenda under that. So it's like a quid pro quo or I'm doing this for you, but subconsciously I'm expecting that you're going to do this for me. You know, one of the things I say in my workshops is that twos need to be careful that they work from love and not for love, Mm -hmm. that they work from love and a sense of being loved by God and out of overflow rather than working and serving for love because they want something in return, for example. And I think the sheep out of Matthew 25 is so compelling because they get to the end and they're like, wait, when did we see you and where and wait, why were you even there? And it's like that this motive was so pure. It wasn't so they could go to heaven or whatever. It wasn't so that God would like them or whatever. It was just that they saw the person in need and they stepped in because that person needed their help not because they could get something in return, not because they could get something out of God, but because they really wanted to help the person in front of them. And I think that's a really, really great healthy two that we see modeled out from the sheep and the goats that we just don't really think about the motive underneath that text. Yeah, Yeah. like just pure giving without return. You also talk about an application for type twos and you say uh, Matthew 7, 11. Talk to me about that. Yeah, Matthew seven eleven is that text that if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask of them? You know, I, I think it's so big for the twos, once again, to work from love, not for love. So it's just so huge that twos put themselves in a position to be okay with having needs from God. Mm-hmm. You know, twos spend so much time trying to solve the needs of the world, and they're so resourceful and so wonderful However, I think a lot of times um, twos operate in shoulds and they forget to operate out of overflow. And I think it's just that reminder that you yourself are worth being loved. You're worth God spending time loving and filling you up. And so just making sure you're taking time to, to be filled and to sit in God's presence and to, um, to live a life that's full of joy and, and receiving and not just giving. I love that. That's so rich. I I hear a lot of Christian twos say, you know, I'm the worst number. Like they feel so yeah. much shame. And yeah. this is such a rich, encouraging passage versus 
a lot of times we hear, oh, Mary Martha, Mary Martha, oh, you're Martha. Totally. Yes. The twos are all the Marthas. And we're, and then they're just feeling even worse mm-hmm. about themselves. So I love that insight. Okay, let's move on to type three, the achiever. What narrative would you say goes with this type? Yeah, so for the type three, I identify as any a type three, um, which means I'm a recovering jerk. Um, (laughs) I suppose we all are in some way, shape and form. That being said, you know, threes are often types of people with some natural sort of skill as they grow up. They're sort of rewarded often for certain things that our society sort of rewards, whether it's athletics or whether it's some sort of testing or success, whatever that is. Like threes often identify with like a perception of success. And this is sort of like an an anti-hero narrative that I have to pay attention to. King Saul's narrative is so interesting to me because he starts really kind of almost exactly the same way King David does. Mm -hmm. So he's raised agrarian like most are at the time. He's not seen, uh, although he has natural sort of um, looks and height, things that that society also prized. He was anointed out of sort of obscurity, very similar to the way David was. And what I notice about Saul is he begins to sort of trust his natural capabilities and to lean away from his anointing and into pride. And so over the course of time, he sees himself as not really needing accountability, not needing to invite others in, sort of chasing after more and more. He's obviously jealous at David because, you know, he has slain thousands, but David tens of thousands. Mm -hmm. He doesn't see himself in a long chain of succession and handing off the baton and part of a deeper story. He sees his own narrative as what matters most, and he needs to be as successful and dominant as possible. And so for, for Saul, it actually ruins his life. He comes to a point where he just cannot be held accountable and Samuel calls him straight out and that he just refuses to repent and leads a life where he loses his anointing. The self-exaltation is like this downward spiral leading to coercion, jealousy, and pride, and that the three has to remain connected to people that can ask them honest questions of accountability. Yeah, yeah. I think in Saul's story, just about his inability to allow himself to diminish, like when his time has come and gone and he just can't do it. You know, naturally, God designed it that our seasons come and go. Like, Mm. you know, maybe I have a certain level of influence and that influence goes away. I have a certain level of whatever, social strength, and that diminishes and just Saul just can't let it go. Yeah, I mean, David, I mean, the difference between David's narrative and Saul's narrative, again, very, very similar from beginning except where it gets to that point where the end where David is willing to repent, but Saul is not. Yeah, Mm -hmm. And it seems to be a really big divider between those that actually end life well and those who don't, those who really understand the need for repentance and grace and to rely on anointing that comes outside of ourselves from the spirit or those that are just going to kind of force our way through and to become these sort of coerced, spectacular versions of who we think we should be. So we have the application verse as 1 Corinthians 13, 1. Tell us about that. Yeah, it goes along with with what was just said and that like we can do all of these things, whether you're speaking in tongues or whether you're, you know, doing these spectacular feats of prophecy or gifting or writing or whatever that is. But if love isn't the sort of motivating factor, then what does it matter? I mean, Paul says it's like a clanging symbol. It's like a resounding gong. And so that that core verse is that reminder that all of our gifts are meant to be generative into the world. They're not meant to draw light back into ourselves, but for us to actually shine light out of us and into the world. Yeah, yeah, that's good. 
Okay, let's talk about type four, the uh, originalists. Which narrative do you think best showcases this type? For type four, which is my wing, and I identify um, pretty equally with three and four, um, Job is the narrative that I see a lot of that in. And, and a lot of that is the sort of preoccupation with self. I mean, so much of the narrative of Job is about self-loathing. Yeah. This guy is super yep. in touch with his feelings. Um, yeah. He probably was very good at journaling with whatever was a supermarket and brings in friends to talk to him about his plight. And don't get me wrong, this guy went through hell. Mm. So I'm not minimizing that. We all have seasons of wilderness and darkness. But it's that sort of what I feel is all that is true in the world. And Job is just that guy that the whole book is just about what he's going through and he wants to hear about it and talk about it. Mm. Um, finally, you see God coming in and just being like, hey, where were you when? And mm-hmm. where were you when this happened? And where were you when I created that? It's almost like God is intervening saying, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry for what's happened for you, but there's a bigger story happening in the world and I'd love for you to join it. And if you will, like you'll see that I make all things new. I don't mean to be crass because we, we do go through really hard seasons. And yet it seems like the invitation is that learning to release our grip on the gifts of life and realize that they're just gifts. They're not identity markers for us. It allows us to accept um, pain and sorrow and connect it with a larger story. That what we feel isn't the only thing that's true in the world, even though what you feel is true, that God is writing a massive story that we're invited to participate in, even in our darkest days. Yeah, yeah. And the reminder too, that it's not like we're the only person that ever suffers, Mm -hmm. you know? And in fact, God himself suffers. Mm -hmm. Like. And if you're going to have a conversation with God and God starts it with brace yourself, <laughs> it's it's about to get intense. <laughs> Buckle up. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say is the application for type four? Yeah. So the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4 is this beautiful passage. It's the most central passage in all of the Bible. The Jewish people have prayed it since, well, this passage began. It's a smash up of about three different passages from Torah. But in Deuteronomy 6.4, uh, we see that that God invites us to love God with all of our heart, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And what I like about the Shema is it's about integration. It's about um, not just being emotional. It's about integrating our love of God in our bodies and also in our minds. But it's also about loving others as ourselves. And I think that the four is tempted to just sort of go on this narcissistic sort of temptation of my narrative is um, the most interesting, the most you know appealing, the, the one that everyone should be focused on. And if fours aren't careful, um, they lose sort of resourcefulness with, you know, joining other people's stories. And I think the Shema is that reminder that like God is integration. God is a trinity who is one and is connected to the world. And that we ourselves as fours need to be connected to the wider story of what God is doing and not just bent into ourselves and to see life beyond our own narrative. Mm, Yes, yes, totally. So something else that I was thinking of as you were talking about Job was just how we all need some four. Like you said before, we want to have aspects of every number within our integrated self. And I think how good it can be, for instance, for a seven to spend some time with Job, Mm -hmm. to be willing to look at the darker side, to sit with people in their suffering. And that fours really bring that to the table, that they are able to sit with people um, in their hardest moments, that they're great at empathizing with suffering and pain. They're not scared to talk about the darkness. And so I think that's another aspect that we can look at Job and say, when, when each of us suffers, because regardless of what type you identify with, 
you will most likely encounter suffering. And a story like Job is an encouragement, just like a four in your life can also be that presence in the midst of suffering. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, listen, that is the heart triad. Stay with us because when we come back, we're going to continue our journey through the biblical narratives as we make our way through the head and the gut triad. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Anna, media editor. At the beginning of August, I talked with a few interns from our summer 2021 term who had just wrapped up their three-month-long internship where they lived, worked, and served in our city here in Louisville, Kentucky. Hi there, my name is Naomi. I'm from Carthage, Missouri. Naomi served at Hope Place, a Christian community development center where she mainly worked with children. Hope Place also strives to be trauma-informed, meaning that they recognize signs and symptoms of trauma and seek to provide personalized care. Naomi said that she learned a lot about how trauma can affect the child's behavior and how the message of the gospel can bring hope and healing. Understanding what goes on underneath the surface of certain people's behaviors. Because every time the kids might act out or have like an identity crisis, that's a chance for us to minister to these kids. There was actually one girl that was crying saying, man, I'm just crying right now. And I was like, oh, why are you crying? What's wrong? And she's like, well, I'm crying tears of joy because Jesus loves me. And it's like, it's just awesome to see little kids respond to the gospel that way. If you want to find your internship where social action and Christian community meet, head over to lovethyneighborhood.org and apply today. That's lovethyneighborhood.org. Welcome back to the IndieCast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Lindsay Lewis. We are still here with A.J. Sherrill as we make our way through the biblical narratives and the Enneagram. So I guess that brings us to our next type. We're heading into the head triad. So our first type in the head triad is type five, the investigator. What narrative would you pair up with the type five, A.J.? The narrative for the five, it's one of my favorites. And my wife, Elena, is a five. And we just chuckle about this so much. (laughs) She's a total investigator. She's a researcher. She is just always in her head and is one of the most resourceful people I know. But I I have always connected Nicodemus with the Mm -hmm. investigator. We see Nicodemus rearing his head in John 3, John 7, John 19. And every time you kind of imagine him as kind of like a journalist, the sort of skeptical (laughs) journalist who is just sort of like taking notes, studying, looking from afar, asking some questions, and then going away and thinking about that. And you see that his journey is so beautiful that he goes from like coming to Jesus in the middle of the night so that he's not going to be seen to being seen taking his body into his burial. So like his spiritual journey is one of like investigation and being unsure to as the narrative of John goes along, John brings him along the narrative to say he didn't have this like one and done conversion experience that he had an opening to Jesus as the Messiah throughout the course of time that led him to be so bold at the end that he was actually integrating his body carrying the dead body of Jesus into his mm. gravesite, which is so profound. Mm-hmm. It is. What would you say is the application for the type five? Yeah, I, I look at this verse out of Hebrews, you know, so much of the five, similar to the four in terms of the Shema, but for different reasons, you know, the five is often in their head. 
Mm-hmm. And integrating uh, into their emotions and their bodies is really helpful. And what I find in this passage of Hebrews, it's that long swath where, you know, they talk about people who have gone before us who have like paid the price for their faith. And it's an extreme passage of saints who have walked our path, but but died for their faith. There's this one passage in Hebrews 11 where it says, <laughs> it's such a throwaway line, that some were sawn in two. Mm-hmm. And it's that that is like in the middle of the text where I'm like, whoa, 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 that's so graphic. Mm -hmm. That is like, who lets their kids see that? That some were sawn in two. Um, I I think it's it's so beautiful that when we can get out of our heads and into our bodies, and I think that's really good medicine for the five, whether it's integrating yourself in nature, serving somehow, using your hands, allowing yourselves to feel. These are part of integrating healthy spirituality. And for fives, not to just be sort of researchers, armchair theologians, um, but to really be in their bodies is a really good recipe for wholeness. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, to live embodied. Okay, let's talk about type six, the loyalist. What narrative comes to mind for type six? For type six, I've already sort of hinted at this with Peter and we see Peter, uh, he's one of the narratives that we that the text gives us a lot of information about. Abraham is the same way. Um, Peter, I liken to the six similar, similarly because we see him sort of going in and out of health all the time. Like at some moments, he's just brilliant. And at others, he's just a catastrophe. <laughs> and we sort of love that about him mm-hmm. because it's like, here's a real human like actually trying to follow Jesus. And this is what our lives are like. Like yes. how, how many of us like just live this thing out perfectly and don't doubt or question or don't have moments of just spectacular failure. And yet Peter keeps getting up. And I find in the core of six of, of Peter walking on water, it's such a beautiful sort of mode because when Peter walks on water, it's not like Jesus asked him to, right? Sixes are often these incredibly courageous people that come up with all these beautiful, wonderful ideas, you know, even especially counterphobic sixes Mm -hmm. and can find themselves doing these spectacular things. And then before you know it, they're questioning everything. Mm -hmm. And so Peter in like two verses, he's walking on water because that was his idea. And Jesus had come And then the next he's sinking because there's waves around him. Mm -hmm. And you're like, wait, what? (laughs) How do you go from such miraculous empowerment to such failure? Mm -hmm. And that marks a lot of, what we all feel about being disciples of Jesus, that it's just an exercise of failure all the time and one of getting up and doing it again. And so from that all the way to, um, you know, his three denials of Jesus. And I mean, the, the, the list goes on and on about Peter in one moment declaring at Caesarea Philippi, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And literally the next sentence rebuking Jesus when Jesus tells him he'll go to the cross and Jesus calling him Satan. That he goes from like getting it, the confession absolutely right to being called Satan. What a Mm -hmm. crazy narrative of shifts and twists and turns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do love it because sixes are notorious for like, oh, you're going to make this claim. I need you to prove it to me, you Mm -hmm. know? And so it's Mm. like, Jesus, if it's really you, (laughs) tell me, tell me to come out on the water. And then then it's like, I'm not fully believing this This problem starts, you know? But I also think of this, like sixes often have the trance of like, Everyone else is not very faithful and loyal, but mm-hmm. I'm very faithful and loyal. Right. And then you got Peter doing that yes. same posturing only to be the one that, you know, becomes a scaredy cat and becomes a coward. Yeah. You know, but it's out of that that Jesus wakes him up to reality, you know, mm-hmm. and then and then begins to heal that. Yeah, that's so good. What's the application for type six? Yeah, I mean, sixes wrestles so much with anxiety, fear, all that stuff. But this invitation that 
you know, if you believe Peter wrote First Peter, which you can make a, a good claim on that, Peter comes to a point in his own discipleship later in life to cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And I think especially in an anxious age that we live in that can get in the way of so much of what the Spirit helps us to imagine our lives are supposed to be about and the things we're supposed to run after, anxiety gets in the way. I mean, whether it's a, a book project he wanted to start or whether it's a business or whether it's parenting, it's like we get these spectacular ideas. You know, for Peter, the winds and the waves came against him and he sank. Our anxieties come against us. Uh, our second thoughts come against us. Well, maybe God didn't say that. To really be at a place where in conviction, we can say God has called me to X, Y, Z. And whatever anxieties or fears come my way, I can cast them on him because he cares about me. And he's going to lead me through what he told me I should be about. And I think that's really good medicine. I think that's what Peter did. And I think that's why he gets to a point in his maturity later in life when he can write a letter like this. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Like instead of addictively looking for the detailed solutions to every problem, mm. those things are important, but you get to a point where you realize that's a math equation that's never going to resolve. Right. So I got to bring it all to Jesus because yeah. he's going to be the one that's going to carry all that. Right. All right. Type seven, the enthusiast. You know, we know this is Peter Pan. So I have a guess, but who is our biblical narrative of Peter Pan? I think you should venture your guess. I want to hear it. I mean, Solomon... Had yes. many wives. He experienced all there was to experience in yes. the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, you talk about a future orientation guy. We're talking about a guy <laughs> who imported 12,000 horses from Egypt. Yeah. Built fleets of ships like never seen before. Imported gold. Maintained 14,000 chariots. Okay, this one's weird. Loved upwards of 1,000 women. Mm -hmm. what, what? What's happening? I mean, he imported more... Um, chariots than he had horses. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> mm -hmm. right? It's just hilarious. But these are the, sort of the extreme cases, and Solomon was was definitely that. And just seemed to to learn at the end of Ecclesiastes, sort of learns that um, a life of distraction and excessive behavior is not actually the path to flourishing. Mm -hmm. um, that he learns that there's restraint that's actually needed uh, in a season for everything to really flourish in life. It's pretty amazing in our current culture. I feel like we, even Christians, we're always striving for more. You know, like we really want the next phone. We really want a better car or, you know, just to move up into that other neighborhood, whatever it is. And here in our own kind of sacred text, we have God showing us, here's a guy who literally had it all and he is giving you a word and it is that it did not make him happy. Mm -hmm. And yet still our hearts continue we all have that in us, you know, that running after, maybe if I had a little bit more, you know, maybe if I had the newest chariot, that would be the balm for my soul. And then here's Solomon, who literally had more than we could ever imagine yes. having, telling us it doesn't work. It's not enough. Yeah. It's not enough. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what the wisdom tradition is. It's being willing to learn from other people's narratives and apply it to your life. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many of us is like, well, no, I need to learn that for myself in order to believe it. And that's fine. But the heartache that comes with that, I think the wisdom tradition is always saying, just let me save you from a decade of heartache <laughs> yeah. and help yeah. you to learn into what you really long for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So really what you're encouraging, what I'm hearing literally as I listen to you right now is encouraging us to a different way of reading the Bible. Even I've, you know, was raised in a Christian home. So I've read through the Bible 
many times and sometimes it can just fall flat. But this is a more meditative practice where you're picturing like the character, the situation, the personality, and then looking at your own life and saying, where is this speaking to me today? And instead of seeing it as just as the story about Solomon, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that we are story creatures, like we mm-hmm. attach to story. And I want the emerging generations particularly to see the scripture as telling a story that's worth our attention mm-hmm. and that we can imagine ourselves in and that God's self is inhabiting this story with us, um, just as he did back with Abram, just as he did back with Jacob, just as he did back with Paul and Peter. And so I think people imagining that kind of story and seeing themselves living out that script and learning from it, I think is really where true life is is found and not in the, not in the scripts we kind of see all over society, whether it is the new phone or the advertisement or um, this sort of, you know, new car or presentation or whatever it is that's sort of recruiting our hearts. You know, the other thing I like in this too, is Solomon actually showcases a part of the seven that many people miss, which mm. is that sevens are deeply curious people. Mm. Sometimes they have such sort of like a childlike puppy frenetic mm-hmm. energy, you know, that mm-hmm. people sort of think of them as shallow but actually, many sevens, when you sit with them, they're deeply curious, yeah. thoughtful, contemplative people when they can mm. kind of dial it down, sort yeah. of the frantic nature of it all. And I think Solomon showcases that. Like, he showcases the, like, here's what happens when I'm kind of, like, off the chain and things mm-hmm. aren't going great, but here's what can happen in the best parts of God moving within me if I just slow my roll and <laughs> think, you know, and contemplate. But I think he showcases the curiosity of the seven very well. Yeah, I agree. So what's our application for the type seven? Yeah, I think for the seven, sevens are gifts. We love sevens. And so I don't think it's like a repudiation of being awesome. It is to say that there's a time for everything and that freedom um, is not the absence of of boundaries. It's often the presence of them. Mm -hmm. So it's like knowing my limit of what I'm going to drink before I go to the party, knowing my limits of how long I'm going to stay or where I'm going to find myself or what websites I'm going to look at, things like this that actually provide really healthy boundaries in life because there's a time for everything, right, that we see from Ecclesiastes, that there are times for laughter and weeping and there's times like there are just times and seasons that God has given us over the whole arc of our life and that we should allow ourselves to live into some of those limits in order to truly flourish. All right, let's talk about the gut triad, body triad. Let's kick things off with type eight commonly known as the powerful person or the challenger. So what's the narrative for type eights? Yeah, this one, uh, the narrative for the type eight is um, a pretty quirky one. And there's a few to choose from. And I really connected in Matthew 15 and then in Mark 7, it's repeated. It's the Syrophoenician woman, also known as um, the Canaanite woman. So this would not have been um, a Jewish woman. This would have been a Syrophoenician, so think north of the Galilee, toward the water, a seafaring people, people that were seen as definitely unclean. And this woman comes up to Jesus and she begs for healing. And she begs for healing, not for um, herself, this sort of exorcism she was longing for. She begs it for someone else. So like, that's one thing I notice about the eight is they're the most misunderstood type on the Enneagram. And yet... It's so it's such an awkward narrative because Jesus at first like refuses her request mm-hmm. and it could almost seem like she's being demanding. But what's so true about the eight is that she puts up this debate with the son of God, 
right before his disciples, which was awkward, I'm sure. And she's doing it on behalf of another. She's doing it on behalf of her family member. And I find that to be so compelling that eights are just willing to push, push, push to fight for justice, even if it means risking a relationship. Mm. And I find that to be really inspiring and also enlightening that much of the aggression that people experience from eights, sometimes it can be unhealthy, but other times that aggression is how we change the world sometimes. Um, And I don't mean violence or something like that. I just mean pushing forward toward justice, which is what this woman was doing on behalf of a loved one. Mm -hmm. And I find it to be a very impressive, spectacular narrative, although awkward and hard to deal with as a text in the scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, What about an application for type eights? I think the biggest, I'm a church calendar guy as well. I I have a calendar time for every type. Um, I love talking about the eights in terms of Pentecost. And it's that reminder that the spirit is at work renewing the world more than you think and is more passionate about it than even you are. Mm. So if you're an eight, I know sometimes you feel alone. You feel like you're trying to make justice happen. You feel like if you don't, no one will. God doesn't care either. And so it's sort of like you against the world. And that passage from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is like, hey, trust in the Lord with all your heart, submit to him, and God will make your path straight. It's like that reminder that we partner and participate with God in justice, that we ourselves don't have to make all the justice happen. It is not your job to save the world, but nor is it your job to ignore that it needs saving. It's that sort of balance that the application is, yes, work for justice, work for good, work for renewal, work for change, but know that you can't do it alone and that God actually is working even more deeply than you are, even though you may not know it or see it. Mm, It's so good. All right, let's jump to the type nine, the peacemaker. What would be our narrative to go with the peacemaker? I love Abraham for the peacemaker. I mean, again, Mm -hmm. like Peter, we get a wide swath from Genesis Mm -hmm. 12 to 25. And um, the reason I like him for that is that, I mean, here's a guy who over and over in his narrative, he's kind of being dragged into stuff where he's like, okay, I guess, you know, he's like, lot, which way do you want to go? Okay, I'll go that way. You know, his his own wife. And I know it's more complicated than this and loaded with culture, but his wife's like, hey, will you take my maidservant Hagar to be, you know, to have a child. He's like, yeah, I guess so. You know, I mean, this is a guy like over, like just really, at least from what I can see in the text, he seems like he's pretty easy going. Like he's willing to go with what people around him are saying, Hey, maybe you should try this and do that. And he's like, sure. I'll try that out. No problem. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm at home here, but God, I'll leave everything and follow you toward a promise. Um, even though I'm old and can't imagine ever having children, I mean, it's just a hilarious narrative. I don't know what to say about it other than like, who would do that other than a nine? Yeah. And he tells his wife like, hey, you know, we might experience some conflict in this town. So could you just say you're my sister? Like, let's just keep the peace. I just want Mm -hmm. peace with Pharaoh. So let's just do what we need to do. And then they take her. And he's like, well, there she goes. (laughs) God's like, wait, no. Here's the father of the Jewish people, you know, of which (laughs) Jesus will come from. You know, this is the guy that it's just, again, like Peter, it is such a miraculous thing that God has chosen us to renew the world. It's Mm -hmm. bizarre. You know, God chooses someone like Abram, Moses, who can't even speak clearly. It's just amazing the fact that God sees what God sees in us and calls us into newer and deeper things. It's amazing. Mm. The thing too that I love on Abraham's is like, 
the burden that nines carry is like, it doesn't really make a difference whether I show up or not. Yeah. What's going to happen is going to happen. And I'm just sort of sucked along for the ride. Mm-hmm. And like Abraham is the bedrock of the faith. Like, yeah. like the guy that probably himself felt like, who cares? Like no one cares about me. I'm not that yeah. important. And he's the guy that all of us point back to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about type ones, uh, commonly known as the reformer. These folks are just okay. Ah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which narrative jumps out at you for type ones? So type ones, the perfectionist type, if you will, the Apostle Paul is one that jumps out on me. I mean, we're talking about a kind of type that getting it right, dotting your I's, crossing your T's. I mean, I love it. He even when his apostleship's being questioned, He's so funny where he's like, it's only by grace, but he starts it by being like, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Mm -hmm. Like he's got his resume, Yes, you know, and it's almost like he could have just said, it's all grace guys. But he's like, well, let me at least stuff my resume in here and then tell you it it, it means nothing, but you need to know it anyway. And it's just a kind of a kind of person who gets knocked off his horse and realizes that identity is discovered in grace and not in my resume, in grace and not in my perfectly manicured bathroom, in grace and not in the fact that my kids don't always act the way that I think they should. Things like that, where I think Paul comes to grips with the fact that grace really is bigger than he thinks, and that repentance, meaning imperfection, what is repentance? It's it's, It's admission of imperfection that I, I am not the standard of holiness in which God has called me to be. And that um, because of God's character and God's grace, that's okay. That God is actually one that loves and invites me into repentance as my way of being formed. And Paul has to go through a massive journey to learn this and really gets to the end of his life and just says, it's really all about the cross. It really is as a participation. I think that's a very big shift of someone that wanted to clean up Judaism and make sure there were no false teachers in it to someone who would be willing to say, like, I'm a mess, and God is good, and God is making me new every day, but it's not through my own work, it's through His grace. Mm. I love that he talks about the thorn in the flesh. I feel like that is also such a key thing for ones, because I think being a one is our thorn in the flesh. Of Just this mm-hmm. idea of he has had this radical transformation, and he is living a very radical lifestyle all in the name of Jesus, building, you know, the church and traveling, being persecuted. And yet he has this thorn in the flesh of he will not be perfected until he is united with Christ, Mm -hmm. you know, in the end. Mm -hmm. And that for once, it's so tempting to hear and feel shame and guilt of like, I've been a Christian for how long? I'm still messing up. I'm still messing up. And hearing that passage as an encouragement of, here's Paul, who was just all out, and yet he says, you know, he has this thorn in the flesh that he requested again and again to be removed, and Jesus said no. You know, like, mm-hmm. you you won't be perfected until Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. when you meet him face to face. I just think it's such an amazing thing to see his story, because he leaves— Um, if I could use this word, he leaves propriety. Mm -hmm. Like he leaves what is proper and what is good etiquette and Mm -hmm. what is socially correct. And he abandons all of that. Like that's a radical move for somebody who's got a lot of type one in them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so talk to me about the application for type one. I think it's um, it's truly a life that is willing to um, get outside of whatever standards we put on ourselves to perform and be perfect and to really accept grace and repentance, not like as doctrinal ideas, but like as invitations, I think. It's, it's to reimagine that maybe repentance is an invitation and not like a, a shame mechanism. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's an invitation to be even more holy and beautiful than I could have through my own sort of meritocracy or my own sort of fashioning. And that's where you really begin to understand just how loving this God that we're talking about really is. Yeah, that's good. Good. Well, that's been deep and profound. I think it's time for us to act like idiots. <laughs> so when we come back, we're going to be playing You've Got Problems with AJ Sherrill. Stay with us. Here at LTN, we believe that in order to be loved, you must be known. And part of being known means understanding who you are, which is why we created Mapping Your Enneagram Story. Mapping Your Enneagram Story is a workbook to help you map your life story and understand who you are. Using the lens of the Enneagram, you'll explore how the story you've lived has made you into who you are and why Jesus is the key to living a better story. To get your own copy of Mapping Your Enneagram Story, just go to lovethatneighborhood.org and click the store link at the top of the menu. There, you'll find Mapping Your Enneagram Story, plus all our other Enneagram content. And all proceeds go directly to support Love Thy Neighborhood. So go to lovethyneighborhood.org and click Store. Mapping Your Enneagram Story. Find the clarity you need to have meaningful, long-lasting relationships. Welcome back to the IndieCast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Lindsay Lewis. And now it's time for You've Got Problems. Okay, so You've Got Problems is based off a real game by Jack Dyer. You can find it on Amazon or by going to jackdyer.com. Okay, AJ, here's how you play. For each round, Lindsay and I are going to each present you with two perk cards. These have wonderful, useful awesome things on them. Uh, You're going to choose which perks you would like to have in real life. However, before you choose, Lindsay and I are going to sabotage each other's perks with a problem. So whichever perks you choose will also have a problem that comes with them. After we sabotage, you have to choose which set of perks and problem you would go for in real life. Whoever's set of perks you choose gets a point. We'll do three rounds. Best out of three wins. Are you both ready? Ready. Totally. I'm in. Okay. Ladies first. All right. AJ, here are your perks. You have an advanced robot to do your bidding, and you can accomplish any task related to your employment by snapping your fingers. That's good. Oh, the finger snap for sure. So it's a package deal. So that's the first thing you're being offered. Here's what I'm offering you. You are immune to all diseases. Oh, oh gosh. And as if that's not enough, you also have a time machine. (laughs) It may or may not be a DeLorean. Okay. So if you choose Jesse's track, you will have a time machine and you'll be immune to all diseases. And your head will only be six inches tall. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that. But uh, if you choose Lindsay's, 
You'll have an advanced robot to do your bidding, and you can accomplish any task related to your employment by snapping your fingers. But there's a problem, and the problem is you die. Well, duh, you're going to die anyway. <laughs> That's it. I choose life. You choose life, which means you choose mine. No. Which means... He was just contemplating. No. I choose tiny life. Very tiny life. Tiny life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one point for Jesse. Oh, sweet. Um, okay. My perks are you have infinite endurance and you will never have to wait for anything ever again. Oh, that sounds mm. nice. Yeah. Mm. Infinite endurance and, and no need to wait. Yeah. You could get stuff Dude, done. Yeah. That's, That's efficiency. That's yeah. efficiency yeah. next level. Well, here's what I'm offering. You are impervious to fire. I don't know on what occasions <laughs> you will need that, but when you do need it, You'll be glad you had it. Mm -hmm. And you have the power of teleportation. Ooh. Mm. So you could do uh, in-person interviews. Just, you know, <laughs> really? just get there real fast. So if you choose Jesse's track, you have teleportation and you're impervious to fire, but you also turn into a French bulldog. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If you choose Lindsay's, you have infinite endurance. You will never have to wait for anything ever again, but... Every year on Christmas, you teleport to a deserted island with no possessions. Oh, I'm definitely taking the teleport to a deserted island with no that one day a year. I can figure that out. That's good. So oh, Lindsay, so I got Lindsay a point. got a point. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Lindsay gets the point. Woo! Man, I thought for sure I was like, how sweet, can I sweet. sabotage the priest? I'll mess mm. him up around Christmas time. Oh, I get it for the Christmas thing. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna go first this time. Here's what I'm offering you. You have a perfect singing voice, mm. and you can remove ads from your life entirely. Oh. No more advertisements anytime, anywhere. Is that enticing at all? Yeah. Okay. So here are my perks that no one can ever lie to you, and you will get an immediate response to every text you send, but you will never be expected to respond to any text. Oh, that sounds kind of nice. I probably prefer people to lie to me at some point in my life, but I'm not aware <laughs> of You're a complex character, AJ. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so option one was no ads and a singing voice. Yeah. But also, the problem is every Tuesday for the rest of your life, you will have to eat a bowl of teeth. Of <laughs> teeth? <laughs> Are they human teeth? Where do, yes. they, where do these teeth come from? Teeth. I <laughs> I love it. I love it. Like, let's talk about the teeth. Assorted <laughs> teeth. Where, where are you sourcing these teeth? <laughs> a medley. A teeth medley, if you will. <laughs> so Lindsay's offering uh, you these perks that no one can lie to you and that you'll get an immediate response to every text you send and you'll never be expected to respond to any text. But there's a problem. And the problem is that everyone you make eye contact with will automatically karate chop you in the throat. <laughs> I'm taking the teeth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Just, All right. You're boys. on fire today. Well, it does help that we're, we have an Enneagram mind meld going it's on. True, it's true. The three, four thing going yeah. on. You can't. Put some oat milk on that. And, oh. and those would go down easy. <laughs> Broth it up. <laughs> teeth sprinkles on your oat latte. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, Lindsay, uh, clarify for me. What just happened? Um, we finished the game and it's time to go to break. <laughs> <laughs> I won. <laughs> I won. All right. And now it's time for listener questions. 
right. This question comes from Digmo412. What types do you see represented in Jesus's disciples? Uh, well, we've talked about Peter. If you were to see the zealot, uh, that has a lot of eight characteristic in you. I mean, if you were to see a tax collector, there's probably a lot of five, mm-hmm. maybe some one in that. Um, to go down the list, we don't. I don't know that we have a ton of more information on a lot of them to make any sort of educated guess. John might give us a little bit, um, especially his own loved disciple that's loved. It might be some four in there, some three in the way that they're competing to sit next to Jesus in the the kingdom. Um, Lindsay, to your point at the beginning, I think we should be very slow to type these people, but we can Mm -hmm. see some ways they present. Mm -hmm. If we don't ask the question, what are the core types of the characters? But we ask the question, in what ways do we see these traits, Mm -hmm. these traits being represented in key moments, key interactions. I'm more comfortable applying sort of that language rather than like, let's type every name that shows up, you know? I think it is worth saying that Jesus was pretty selective in, in finding people in disparate sort of situations. Like when we look at the, the ragtag team of followers that they do represent different backgrounds and uh, the diversity that he invites to come follow him from gender to tribe to socioeconomics. I mean, there's just, there's some diversity on that team. So we can say with confidence that, you know, Jesus didn't come along and pick everybody that reminded them of themselves. Okay, this question comes from an anonymous listener. Would you recommend using the Enneagram in everyday Bible study, as in considering types of characters or authors as you read? Uh, my answer to that would be no. I, I think the Enneagram is a tool, and that's about it. I think it's helpful. It's not ultimate. I think sometimes that can that can actually, if you're not careful, distance you from the hard work of formation. And you know, life isn't about just characterizing people and personalities. So I, I think one of the points of the Enneagram is sometimes to get beyond it into other questions and conversations that can actually, you know, the Enneagram helps to shape and inform, but isn't the sort of end-all be-all of trying to understand all of life or the scripture through the Enneagram. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I think of like the Enneagram in many ways is helpful to help us see each of our particular trances that we're in, our mm-hmm. addictions to the ways that we see. But I also see a movement both within myself as well as just people that use the Enneagram in general, it becomes a secondary type of trance if you're not careful. Yeah. Like it begins to, you know, you begin to look for sort of types and patterns and motives like in everything mm-hmm. and you can superimpose these ideas in places that, that are inaccurate. You're just not seeing it correctly. And so I think it's important to go. The Enneagram's wonderful and has been a great tool, but it has major limitations, you know, and, and it's dangerous to try to, overstretch those mm-hmm. mm. cool well aj this has been awesome man yeah yeah thanks for having me on glad to meet y'all if you benefited at all from this podcast please help us out by leaving a review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts your review will help other people discover our show Special thanks to our guest today, A.J. Sherrill. Pick up a copy of his book, The Enneagram for Spiritual Formation. There's a whole chapter dedicated to this topic of finding your type in the biblical narrative. 
I just want to say it is truly one of my favorite Enneagram books that I have read in the last few years. I have found AJ's insights just to be wonderful, wonderfully helpful, um, and encouraging. You can find this along with his other books on Amazon or wherever good books are sold. You can also follow AJ on Twitter at AJ Cheryl or on Instagram at AJ underscore Cheryl. This show is brought to you by Love Thy Neighborhood. Love Thy Neighborhood provides social action internship supported by Christian community for young adults ages 18 to 30. Serve for a summer or a year and grow in your faith and life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org. This episode was edited by Rachel Zabo, Lindsay Lewis, and myself. Rachel is also our media director and producer. Anna Tran is our audio engineer. Music for today's episode comes from Murphy DX. I'm Lindsay Lewis. And I'm Jesse Eubanks. Remember, the eye can see everything but itself. Find people to journey with you because you were created for community.